Well, once again, good morning to you. Really grateful that you're here in this special high Sunday in the history of Christianity and the life of our church and life of believers all around the world. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday. It's been fun talking with my kids about what is Palm Sunday. Many of you who are, might be familiar or have grown up in, uh, in church um, know what this day represents, but it represents the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the last day of his life. If we could transfer ourselves back 2,000 years ago to that, to that Sunday, it would be remarkable about all the events that were going on in Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem was a town that had about 40,000 people on a regular day. 40,000 people or so lived in Jerusalem. But at this time, the time of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, some more than 200,000 people would converge on this city. So on this day, as Jesus, this teacher in Galilee, this one who has been all throughout the region teaching and has, this, has these followers, he enters into the city and there would be all kinds of chaos and commotion and excitement related to him. I've asked Lauren Speaks to come and read from this Palm Sunday text. If you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts will provide one for you quickly. Just raise your hand. And if you would stand as Lauren reads um, the scripture today, the Palm Sunday text of the triumphal entry as Jesus enters Jerusalem. This is Luke 19, 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who are sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colts, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You can sit. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a wonderful passage. And what we've sang already today highlights, kind of, it's a way for us almost to be part of that crowd. Is he worthy? If, if the rocks will cry out, so will I. These people, as Jesus enters into, they see him as the expectant king. The Jews are receiving him as branches on the road and cloaks on the ground. And it's clear that these disciples rejoice and see Jesus as the king that they have long expected. They quote Psalm 118 saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory in the highest. But upon hearing this, the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, 
tell Jesus' disciples to tell them to hush. Rebuke your disciples. They have no business giving you that kind of praise, giving you that kind of title. But Jesus says, if they won't speak, then the very rocks on the ground will cry out. Why is this so significant? Well, see, at the time, the Romans and the Jews would have been quite nervous of all the events going on at the time. Remember, Jerusalem, about 40,000 people on a regular day. But in this season of the year, for this week, more than 200,000 people descend on the city. So this would have been prime time for a Jewish rebellion, for some kind of uproar, for some kind of uprising, for the Jews to finally kick the Romans out. So everybody would have been a little suspicious. Who was this country boy who had people following him saying he's the real king? Were his followers a type of militia? Could these uh, couple hundred thousand Jews suddenly turn into a major Jewish uprising and war? Those kinds of titles that they're lobbying at Jesus were no joke. And people were wondering. A new king could lead to a great battle. So the Roman leaders especially, and the Jewish leaders in particular, would have been quite nervous and would have desired to squelch any kind of potential rebellion around. See, leaders represent a certain, uh, either the success or ruin of a country, especially in battle. See, in, in victory, a leader represents the glory and honor of a nation. When, when, a, when, a, when a certain nation is victorious in battle, the, the leading uh, uh, president or ruler would have taken all the glory and honor on behalf of the nation. And in his glory and honor, the nation then would be honored as well. And the opposite is true in defeat. See, a defeated nation, that, that leader then would be embarrassed. They would be humiliated so that the people could prove this person had really no power. That nation had really no might. And in the humiliation of the leader would be the humiliation of the nation. We expect nations that commit terrible atrocities for those leaders to be held accountable for such. And we expect that leader to be convicted, tried, humiliated publicly so that it might be shown or proven that they have no power. I can think of um, as a high school kid when Saddam Hussein was finally captured in a manhole in the ground and then his public trial and execution. Think about the Nuremberg trials where they held Nazi leaders who committed terrible atrocities publicly accountable for the evils that they had committed. We expect leaders of defeated nations to be humiliated. Consider even in the Old Testament when King Saul was defeated by the Philistines. They cut off his head and hung his body on the wall of a city to show that Israel was not truly powerful, that the Israelite king had no power, they humiliated him. Would it be that way for Jesus? Did this one who they called, who they called as a king, did he really have power? If we needed to squelch out that rebellion, they would do so in a humiliating way. And as we skip ahead a couple of chapters, 
we find that even though Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a king, a, a title he does not deny, he ends up betrayed, arrested, beaten, mocked, and eventually crucified. Serious here. But Jesus is humiliated. But what if his humiliation is not a sign of his defeat, but a sign of his victory? What if the humiliation of Christ is not the humiliation of his followers or the humiliation of his people, but it's actually their victory, their glory? What if Jesus endured humiliation so that we could share in his glory? See, this morning what we're going to do, beginning in Luke chapter 22, is to examine about the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, beginning at the end of the Last Supper and culminating just before the crucifixion. <clears throat> we won't camp out in any particular episode of these hours, but I hope and pray that as we understand the humiliation of Christ, that our love for him would deepen that our affection for him would grow and that we might even understand that in our humiliation, we can trust in the one who has been humiliated for us. So we'll see how Jesus reverses our kingly expectations and we'll find that as he reverses those expectations, he's actually the king who is humiliated and yet in his humiliation, there's the hope of his glory and the glory for those who trust in him. So if you're following along in your Bible, go ahead and flip over a couple of pages to Luke chapter 22. First, we see that Jesus reverses our kingly expectations. Immediately following Jesus' institution of the bread and cup at the Last Supper, an argument or debate among his disciples began for who was the greatest. This is Muhammad Ali saying, I'm the greatest. The, 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 the disciples are arguing about that. See, they had a kingly expectation for Jesus as well. They expected him as a political ruler who was coming into Jerusalem and potentially going to begin the Great Rebellion, the last battle, and that he, Jesus, would restore the right Davidic king on the throne. The Romans would be kicked out. Israel's greatness would be fulfilled or culminate in Christ. And these Disciples of Jesus, they wanted a piece of the pie. They wanted some of the power. They wanted some of the influence and control. It's almost as if the disciples are arguing about cabinet positions. Who's the greatest? But Jesus reverses our kingly or leadership expectations. Look at verse 24 of chapter 22. Luke writes, A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. See, Jesus understands the cultural expectations of leaders or those in authority. Kings of the Gentiles or of the nations exercise lordship or they lord it or hold their power over people. Jesus says they call themselves or are called benefactors. This, is, this would be a self-designation for tyrants or dictators. It's almost as if these leaders are the ones who are able to say, I'm the best there is, plain and simple. You're pretty lucky to have me. 
You're welcome that I am so kind to you and that I lead you so wonderfully. I've made this nation great. See, these are the kind of leaders who see the people under their care as existing primarily for the glory and honor of the leader. They call themselves benefactors as they tax, abuse, manipulate, and lord their leadership and power over people. Maybe you know a leader like this. Maybe you've had a boss or met a a power-hungry politician like this. And we've become extremely leery of authorities because we see the abuse that people in authority can have. And sometimes it leads us to think that all authority is bad. But those who have a position of authority and love the power that they have as part of that can be a dangerous person. For many people, it's not wealth or fame that they're after to give them a sense of meaning, but it's a sense of power, control. The fact that they hold the strings and everybody else is just a puppet. A person in a position of authority, whether it's a baseball umpire or a U.S. senator, is intolerable if they see those under their authority as existing primarily for their own ego. So Jesus contrasts an abusive or egotistical ruler with how the disciples are supposed to act and how Jesus himself acts. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, but not so with you. You don't use your position to lord it over people or hold it over people. The nations might act that way. Secular people might act that that way, but not so with you. Jesus goes on. He says, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. In other words, Jesus is saying, let the greatest among you become the least. Let the one in power uh, see him or herself as the one with the greatest responsibility to serve. Not so with you. You don't lead and lord it over people. You are the one who serves. Jesus uses the word youngest there. He says, let the oldest or the greatest become as the youngest. What's lost on us, maybe in our, in our culture, but uh, is far more common in older generations, and especially in ancient generations, was the responsibility or the privileged position of being the oldest child, especially potentially the oldest male child. The oldest child might have the greater responsibility in, in the estate of mom and dad. Uh, the older uh, sibling might actually get most of the Uh, of the inheritance. A younger sibling would get um, a smaller portion of that, even percentage-wise. They might be given menial tasks in the family business. Think about King David. Back when Samuel came to anoint a new king, all of David's brothers come back to town when the great prophet Samuel comes to anoint a new king. And Samuel goes through each and every one, says, no, not him, not him, not him. And finally he gets to the end and goes, is there another one? And it's almost as if they forget the youngest brother, David. Oh yeah, little bro, he's out in the field. The youngest one though, is our example of leadership. 
Let the greatest become the least. Jesus says to be great means to make yourself low. Being a leader isn't being an antagonistic older sibling who picks on the younger ones. All of us younger siblings can give a hearty amen to that. No, a great ruler becomes a servant to those around. Why is that? We might love the idea of servant leadership, but why? Well, that's because that's exactly who Jesus was. Jesus was a humble servant. Look at verse 27. He says, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at table, but I, I am among you as the one who serves. See, Jesus is the great king, but he's actually the great servant king. See, the promise of the Old Testament is that there would be a servant who would deliver his people. But this servant wasn't one who was going to lord it over other people. He became as a servant. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice and make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for him. Jesus is the true servant leader. See, one of the remarkable things about the events that went on there in the upper room that last night is that there was something that took place that Luke doesn't record for us, but Jesus does. In John chapter 13, we learn that during the meal, Jesus got up. He removed his outer clothes and put a towel around his waist. And he proceeded to take the form of a servant. And he washed all of his disciples' feet. He humbled himself. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach sees this connection when he says, Jesus notes his own example of service. When one recalls the foot washing incident in John 13 in the background, then the remark, the remark has already been illustrated in received comment. The call is clear, lead by serving. We believe foot washing represents more than just humble service to one another, but it certainly doesn't represent less than humble service to one another. See, when we wash one another's feet, we're reminding ourselves that it, it is better to serve than to be served. We're reminding one another that we need a servant posture to be part of the church of Christ. We're reminding ourselves of how Jesus as a servant has served us. So we, we may have cultural qualms against foot washing. It seems uncomfortable to us. It seems uh, distant to us because it's not a practical cultural thing that we see in our lives. But don't allow the cultural distance to distract us from the beautiful symbol of service to one another and to be reminded about how Christ has served us. Jesus is a servant who reverses our kingly expectations. But how else do we see Jesus as a servant? 
Well, as we continue to go on in the rest of chapter 22 and 23, we see Jesus is a servant who's humiliated. At the end, in this last evening, as he's interacting with his disciples, Jesus doesn't sound like a general who's part of this great plan, who knows the next day we're going to win a victory. Jesus sounds a little bit more like a general in defeat, like a general in retreat. He's talking about losing his life. He knows he's going to be humiliated. He knows he's going to suffer. But is this suffering, the kind of suffering, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of suffering or humiliation that a defeated king would receive in, in losing a victory or losing a battle? Or is, he, or is his humiliation part of his victory? Jesus is the humiliated king. As we go on, we're going to kind of give a flyover glimpse over these next few verses. And the goal is not that, you know, we could make a sermon out of any one of these themes. But the goal isn't for uh, us to camp out in any one particular episode of Jesus' humiliation. Rather, the, the, the goal is for us to feel the weight of all that Jesus experienced. It's like adding weight to a barbell. Any of that weight would be crushing on us regardless. But as that weight continues to go, we realize the gravity, the magnitude of Jesus' humiliation, that it is total. Jesus knew of his humiliation. In fact, that's why he quotes from Isaiah 53, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. See, Jesus is the humiliated king, the humiliated servant who brings justice, righteousness, and he delivers the people and suffers on their behalf. But we might ask ourselves, if Jesus experienced this humiliation, what went wrong? But we find that in his humiliation, we see his victory. So we're going to feel the weight of this. It'll feel like a lot of narrative, but I hope as we investigate the humiliation of Christ, we see our own humiliation as well. But first, we see Jesus is humiliated as he prays in agony. Jesus prays in agony. After the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples went to the Mount of Olives, just outside the city. And he told them to, to pray, but then he went a little bit further to pray by himself. And verse 42 says, saying, Father, this is Jesus's prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became as great drops of blood falling to the ground. Have you ever prayed in agony before? Maybe it was in the worst of circumstances. You felt as if you had no hope. You were praying for God to heal a dying spouse. To restore a relationship. In the agony of your life in those prayers, you're asking God to change your circumstances for there's nothing left physically to do. See, Jesus models that it's possible for us to pray that God would change our circumstances and yet still trust in his sovereignty, will, and plan. Jesus knows that he is about to endure the full weight of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And he's in agony over this. 
Many of you know the agony of a panic attack. And that worry overcomes you. Your heart begins to beat rapidly. You break into a cold sweat. It's the kind of out of body experience where you stop and think, is this really happening to me? Where am I? See, Jesus knows that kind of agony, but all the more. Jesus, knowing what he is about to experience, prays in agony to the Father. Remove this from me, but not my will. Yours be done. Jesus' disciples let him down. They sleep instead of pray, but there's a worse kind of letdown, betrayal. Jesus is humiliated as he is betrayed and arrested. He's betrayed and arrested. While speaking to his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, a crowd, including soldiers, comes to Jesus. And Judas, one of his disciples, is leading them. Look at verse 27 or 47. He, Judas, drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? See, Jesus wasn't, wasn't surprised by Judas' betrayal. Matthew's gospel makes very clear that Jesus knew that Judas would be the betrayer. But still, we should not allow that reality to diminish the weight of such a betrayal, especially in the manner in which it was done. Think of Judas for a moment. Judas was one of the original 12 disciples. He had been with Jesus for three years. He witnessed all of the miracles. He heard all of the teaching. He was, he was in that boat, struggling with the rest of the disciples, asking Jesus to change the storm. He, he was with them when Jesus preached the, the marvelous Sermon on the Mount to transform their, their expectation of the law. Judas was with Jesus as he witnessed him raise people from the dead as he made blind people see. Jesus, Jesus and Judas had a friendship. They knew each other. And Judas uses the most intimate of expressions to betray his friend. See, the, the betrayal of a kiss is inaugurated with Judas. Judas. Up until this point, a kiss is always a positive gesture. And in some cultures, especially in the ancient world, a kiss was a type of greeting, especially among friends. So Judas, this friend of Christ, comes to identify who Jesus is for these soldiers, not with pointing, not with lobbying a stone. He gets up close and personal with a kiss. Some of you know what it means to be betrayed by those closest to you. See, betrayal leads to all kinds of confusion. Some of you know the, the feelings and the challenges of that kind of intimate trust that is now broken. Jesus says, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. How humiliating. 
to be betrayed by a friend. Judas wasn't the only one of the disciples who hurt Jesus. They all left him. The same group who earlier discussed who the greatest person among the disciples was now had all abandoned Christ. They, they all promised to remain with him. None more than Peter. But the humiliation of Christ is piled on in Peter's denial. Jesus is humiliated as he is denied. Earlier in the evening, Peter assured Jesus that he would never deny his Lord. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But there, after Jesus is arrested, Peter's in the, the, the courtyard of the high priest. A servant girl recognized Peter and says, you're, you're one of them. You're one of those disciples. And Peter responded, woman, I do not know him. Later, another person says, yeah, this Peter, this is one of the disciples. Peter says, man, I am not. Once more, now an hour later, late into the evening or early in the morning, another person says that Peter had been with Jesus. And now irritated, we've, we sense Peter's response when he says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. But before Peter even finished the sentence, the rooster crowed. And he remembered what Jesus said. But Luke's recording of this is unique. He doesn't put the emphasis on the rooster crowing and Peter being remem remembering what Jesus has said. Look at verse 61. Peter denies Christ. Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine the pain of that gaze. So close, but never so far apart. So much spoken without a word being uttered. Jesus himself beholds Peter face to face. And that's where Peter feels the weight. But it wasn't just Peter feeling the weight of that denial. It was Jesus in his humiliation now experiencing that denial. So far, Jesus' humiliation has been psychological and relational, but the psychological torment now continues, but it's combined with physical abuse. Jesus is now humiliated as he's mocked and beaten. Those who had arrested him were mocking him, beating him. Remember, they were out to prove that he was not truly the king, that he was not truly God. So they blindfold him, hit him and say, prophesy, who is it who struck you? These men are out to embarrass him. And they're showing that he is powerless. He's no king. He's not God. He's powerless. See, the worst that we might feel of this kind of thing is when our favorite team loses and there's maybe an embarrassing picture of the coach after a loss who's frustrated and, 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 and downright out because of that kind of loss. Well, they're doing that same thing to Jesus, but all far worse. They're piling it on. They want him to feel it. He's mocked and beaten. He's humiliated. Well, it's humiliating to feel 
to be arrested, beaten, and then finally let go. But the humiliation for Jesus continues as he's now humiliated, as he's falsely accused and convicted. Now he's before the council of chief priests and scribes. It's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. And they say to, the, they say to Jesus, if you are the Christ, then tell us. But this kangaroo court has no desire for justice. There's no desire for truth here. They're simply trying to catch him, to get him. This is what we might see in a Senate or congressional hearing sometimes. There's really no truth discovery that's after in those hearings. It's oftentimes just a political grandstand event. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. He sa Jesus says, even if I respond, you won't believe me. And if I question, you won't answer the humiliation of a trial that's really going nowhere, Jesus feels. Jesus' own words convict him as he did not, does not deny that he is the son of God. He's then accused of blasphemy, blasphemy, although he truly is God in the flesh. And they say, fine, we're ready. We've heard enough. Let's be done with him. His humiliation then continues as this religious dispute becomes a political and public aspect. See, the Jews at the time had no power to kill. They had no power to condemn. They could excommunicate. They could, they could put somebody out of the synagogue, but they could not put someone to death. They did not have that kind of authority. So they go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they go and include him. And as they do that, they're making Jesus out to be a political pawn. So Jesus now is a humiliated as he's a helpless political pawn. The Jewish leaders take him to Pilate. He's the Roman governor with, with uh, authority over this. And remember, during this time, he would have desired to keep any kind of stress, any kind of rebellion down. So this so-called king, he would have taken an interest in. But notice how, what, so what, notice what the Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of. Chapter 23, verse 2. They say to Pilate, we have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is a king. See, they're trying to make Jesus out to be this rebel. They're trying to make Jesus out to be this kind of insurrectionist. And Pilate really doesn't want to have any dispute as part of this. He finds no guilt in him. He doesn't see these accusations as being proven. So Pilate then sends Jesus to Herod. Herod would have had authority, a Jewish authority, over the, over the region of Galilee, where Jesus was from. Herod was interested to see Jesus, so he mocks him a little bit. He entertains him a little bit. His people make fun of him, but finally, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And it says then in verse 12 of chapter 23, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that very day. For before that, they had been at enmity with one another. See, there was a way that the Jews and the Roman authorities did not like one another. So they used Jesus as a way to show deference to one another. If Jesus is supposed to be this king, well, how is he suddenly this helpless political pawn? He stands there bound, beaten, with really no power. Both Pilate and Herod score political points that day but it still doesn't solve the Jesus problem. So the humiliation reaches its boiling point as Jesus is delivered over 
for a murderer. Pilate tells the Jewish leaders that he finds nothing worthy of Jesus receiving death. But they sim- so he's, he's set to simply beat him a little bit more and then finally send him on his way. But that won't be enough for the Jewish leaders. They try out to exchange Jesus for Barabbas. Barabbas was actually guilty of the very things that they were accusing Jesus of. Barabbas was a, a wicked and guilty person who had caused an insurrection. He had actually tried to kick the Romans out. And he had murdered somebody, the worst of the worst in every society. Pilate tried to persuade them again, but the Jews cry out, crucify, crucify him. A third time, Pilate says, death is not necessary. Death is not just. But verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The height of humiliation is what Pilate knew Jesus to be an innocent man that he then delivers for a knowingly guilty man. Before we let Pilate off the hook, don't feel bad for Pilate. Pilate did what a lot of politicians do. They find what's easy instead of doing what's right. The art of compromise instead of the steal of conviction. Pilate knowingly sentences Jesus, an innocent man, to condemnation and death and releases one who is guilty. Jesus is totally humiliated. Again, any one of those aspects would be humiliating and be uh, crushing in and of itself. But as we feel the weight of all those things, we have to wonder, how is Jesus in control? How is Jesus really powerful? The crowd here receives him with cries of conviction and humiliation. He's put to public shame. Jesus can't be king. And they, the Romans and the Jewish authorities, are trying to prove it. Any of his followers will quickly be dispersed as we publicly shame the leader. But none of this took place outside of Jesus' control. Even at that last supper, Jesus gave the sign of the bread and cup so that his disciples might be, that they might remember Jesus' broken body and his spilled blood. Because for Jesus, this humiliation was not the sign of defeat, but set the table for a meal of victory. Why should we remember this humiliated king? Well, our final point. Jesus' humiliation leads to glory for him and for his people. Jesus' glory leads, Jesus' humiliation leads to his glory and for his people. We feel the weight of that humiliation and we might wonder how could Jesus truly be king? But remember in chapter 22, verse 27, he says, I am among you as the one who serves. And it's in Christ's death that leads to his exaltation. His humiliation leads to his glory. For this is what is written of him in 
Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Jesus's humiliation in no way robs him of his glory, in no way distracts him from the road to exaltation. In fact, his humiliation is the very means that leads him to his exaltation. See, there needed to be a righteous sacrifice for sin. Because of the sin that human beings had committed against the Lord, there needed to be a sacrifice. There needed to be a payment. There needed to be a victory. And Jesus accomplishes that for his people. The eternal son of God who existed for all of eternity past in perfect glory and exaltation, humbled himself, humiliated himself by taking on the form of a human being, living the perfect life, experiencing all of the pain and the agony and the frustration that we do, and then taking our place In that humiliation, he is then exalted. See, brothers and sisters, those scenes of humiliation are glimpses of Jesus taking our humiliation that we deserve. Jesus does not come for those who think they're powerful, for those who think they can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. No, Jesus comes for the weak and the lowly, for the down and outers who recognize they have nothing else to offer. See, consider this. Let's replay all of those aspects of Jesus' humiliation. See, Jesus prays in agony so that we can pray in confidence. Jesus was betrayed so that we can be welcomed by God. Jesus was denied so that we can be accepted. Jesus was mocked so that we can receive honor. Jesus was falsely accused and convicted so that we can be acquitted of our guilt. Jesus was a helpless political pawn so that we can live in security with God. Jesus was delivered for a guilty and condemned sinner so that you and I can live freely as a saint. Whatever you feel in your humiliated state, Jesus has come for the humiliated. Jesus has been humiliated for us. How does that transform your circumstances? How does that transform your sense of humiliation? Ligon Duncan puts it so well. If you know Christ, he says, take comfort from the fact that the sufferings of this life are the worst you will ever endure. We can read and say 2 Corinthians 4, 16, which says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we do look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. See, in a few moments, for all of us who stick around for communion, we're going to gather in what we call the love feast, what the ancient Christians called the love feast. And in that feast, we're portraying, we're symbolizing this great banquet. And the people who are invited to that banquet aren't the ones who think that they made that banquet themselves. Those who are invited to that banquet, the new heavens and new earth, are those who are there through a humiliated Christ. Are those who recognize their own lowly estate? Are those, are the sinners, are the helpless, are the needy who have been invited to the banquet of the King? As we gather for that fellowship, we're reminding one another, we're helping one another get there. Whatever your humiliation is, Jesus has been humiliated for you. Whatever your disappointment, the loss of relationship, the failure of an opportunity, wherever you feel you don't measure up, you measure up with Jesus, not because of your own righteousness, but because Jesus has been humiliated for you. That leads to his exaltation and glory and leads to our glory as well. The humiliation that Jesus endured promises his glory and our glory as well. See, defeated political rulers over time, they experienced the humiliation to, to prove that they had no power. Mussolini was caught trying to flee Italy. He was captured by people as part of the resistance. They killed him and they put his body on public display to prove that he had no power. Tyrants who lorded their leadership over people were captured, tried publicly so that people would realize they have no power. Their defeat was in their humiliation, but not so with Christ. For in his humiliation, he guarantees our victory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are the one now who sits at the right hand of the Father in perfect exaltation and glory. For you are the one who has endured all of our humiliation, who has endured all of our pain, so that all who trust in you might receive newness of life, freedom in Christ, and true glory. We recognize you, Lord, the King, who in his humiliation won our victory. And Lord, I pray for us that we would that, that all, all the truth would, would deepen our love and appreciation for you. That you would lift us from our lowly estate so that we might recognize you, the true king, who in his sacrifice promises our glory and future. In Jesus' name, amen.